Welcome to Tax Wrap, the podcast of Tax and Super Australia. Each fortnight, we present news and insights to tax and SMSF practitioners. If you've got any questions, comments or even suggestions, get in touch at podcast at taxandsuperaustralia.com.au. Hello listeners, welcome to the Tax Wrap podcast. I'm your host, Steve Burnham. Now today I've got a, a special guest, I think, uh, Josh Goldsmith. Hello, Josh. Hello, Steve. Uh, Josh, you're a tax lawyer and um, Josh also hosts quite a few of our uh, tax discussion groups for Tax and Super Australia. So, Josh, you come across a lot of practitioners. Mm, yeah? Absolutely. You hear their problems and their whinges and their concerns and the, what they've got to, to contribute to the conversation. So, I suppose what, we, um, what I'm keen to talk about is what you've found from these practitioners in your many uh, conversations with them. What's the, the mood in the room, as, it, as you put it earlier? Uh, what are they talking about? What are they concerned about? Yeah, thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess in my role, I'm very fortunate in the sense that I um, host two of the discussion groups every month, and I've yeah. been doing this now for a year. And what I really enjoy doing is being able to share a room with a bunch of really clever people. Uh, something that I said very early on in the discussion groups is that um, you don't want my one idea. You, okay, the yeah. idea is not for me to tell you the answer yep. because there are a bunch of very clever people in the room and let's get let, let's see what everyone thinks. And every one of them deals with the hundreds potentially of their clients and taxpayers who have their own problems. So That's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And let's collectively reach resolutions and let's collectively share ideas. So that's the way to do it. I guess I'm very lucky in that sense. But... This generally is a very interesting time in the tax landscape. Obviously, being an election year is oh, yeah. um, does does change things. Yeah, yeah. Where as a, I mean, in general, we're only just starting to see legislation come through Parliament, which but is, t- I guess, to be expected. It, it took a while, didn't it? But there, but there was a potential for a great. Uh, groundswell of change had uh, the opposition uh, got in, but they didn't. But uh, even we have the incumbent government still needs to deal with legislation and it's just starting to come through, isn't it? The, yeah, the very much just starting yeah. to come through. Now, I, the most fascinating part of this election was tax was a big player in this election. Yes. Um, tax yep. policies were significant and obviously the Labor Party weren't successful, but what they were proposing were quite dramatic tax changes and mm. without sharing a political view. Mm. Us as, as tax practitioners needed to be well and truly on guard. To um, <laughs> to give it to give it almost an unrelated analogy, this sort of reminded me of Y two K, where people talk about <laughs> yeah. how they needed to fill their bath with uh, with fresh water <laughs> in case the, the yes. tap wasn't working. Yep. Us as practitioners, we didn't know what the change was going to be and we didn't know what um, entirely this was going to look like. No, we had no. to be well equipped in case Labor was to be successful. Yeah, because people get anxious. I mean, taxpayers have you know a lot at stake and they come to their accountant or tax practitioner thing well we're wringing the hands and what am i going to do and we need to have answers i suppose absolutely yeah. and the election was uh, from memory i think the election was the 18th of may may um, yeah. Uh, yeah we had to spend the first half of this year basically getting equipped in case labor was to be successful oh, yeah yeah um we we had to know what these um what the tax on or the minimum tax rate on trust distributions was going to look like the right. frank and credit refund we had to know what that was going to look like yeah yeah um, I mean, it's just a, it's a, it's a novel of changes that we're going to come through. So right. that, um, that very much controls the conversation for the first half of this year. What would this look like and what yes. are your clients saying, particularly okay. um, with self-managed super funds and the denial of refunds, franking credits and yes, self-managed yeah. super funds. Was, it was a big change. I mean, that was... Yeah, it was yeah. a significant change. And yeah. um, things that we saw, I mean, this, this came out of the budget, but the um, lower middle income tax offset... That's was, right. It was something that was really attractive. So this is that $1,080 yep. um, 
tax offset uh, that that came out of it, as we now know, is a non-refundable tax That's right. offset. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think, I mean, my feeling was, with, was that that wasn't actually explained all that well to taxpayers. What was your take on that? Yeah, I, I think that's definitely right, Steve. I, mm. I think it's a really attractive policy. I, I think yep. um, when you go to a budget, when you say that if you vote for us, yep. you will get $1,080 back in your tax return, you'll be $1,080 better off yeah. than yeah. if you weren't to vote for us. Right. right. Now, that's not entirely true. No, not at no, all. Um, but nonetheless, it's um, <laughs> it's very very good marketing. It's a it's a very good policy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, because it's it's simple. It was clear. It was attractive. And for those earning between mid forty thousand and and ninety thousand, and then it started to phase away to uh, once your income was one hundred twenty six thousand. This was a really attractive policy, mm. and I think we're seeing that. I think the lodgements generally are way up on this time last year because people are keen to get the benefit yeah. of that offset. Were they earlier? Too? I don't know what the figures were, but I've heard anecdotally that uh, returns were lodged earlier than in past years. But yeah, definitely. Yeah. And this is on the back of that $1,080. Right. So this yeah. is something that um, we didn't necessarily – or this wasn't something for us to necessarily control, uh, but this was something that – um, for individual taxpayers, this was attractive. Now, right. as we now sort of know, that's a salary and wage earner. Um, that's that, right. That's a, this is a salary, a salary and wage earner benefit because it is a, a non-refundable offset. Right. It's, um, it's attractive, it worked, um, but I guess the more significant changes were what was going to come out of, um, come out of labour. Um, these changes didn't come through, but that didn't mean that we, that we didn't have to spend a considerable amount of time bracing in case they did come through. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, so that was a concern up until the election came and went, and then now we, we know where we are. But in the people discussions with people, with the tax discussion groups, etc., what else came out of the conversations that you had? Yeah, so something that's been coming up uh, quite a lot at the moment is, and, and we're seeing this in, in cases near on every month of the last couple of months. Really? We're seeing yeah. treatment of compensation payments really? um, okay. being, a, being a relevant thing. Now, if my memory serves me correctly, I think, this is outlined in tax ruling 9535. 9535, okay. Yeah, and, and 9535 goes through about 100 pages and it's quite comprehensive. But if we were to sort of strip it all back, and this is the essence of every case, yep. you work out first and foremost whether the, the sum is dissectable or undissectable. So this is an amount received oh, yes. in compensation. Okay. So, yeah. so compensation for accidents, for losing your job, anything? Anything, anything, anything yeah. Um, right. So they're basically lump sum payments. Right. So... If they're dissectable, the approach generally taken um, by the ATO, and this is whether it's right or, or not right by law, but it is the approach taken by the ATO and it's mm-hmm. been the approach which has been informed by the jurisprudence, right. is that uh, you, you use the underlying asset approach. So the compensation, you ask yourself to what does this relate? And if this relates to it in, to income, yep. then this is basically treated on revenue account. Oh, and if okay. this relates to a, a capital receipt or a capital payment, then right. this, it basically relates to capital. Okay. But I guess the more interesting part of compensation payments, which comes up time and time again, is what do you do in the instance of where the lump sum is undissectable? Okay. So when you've got a compensation payment and it's a lump sum, you don't know what it relates to, but it relates to a bunch of different things. Um, the, the date of release, the terms in which the agreement was entered into, doesn't specify what amounts relate to what components. Right. So what do you do? Well, right. Now, the treatment here is quite favourable for taxpayers, which is which is really nice. And this is treated on capital account. Okay, yep. The benefit of this, Steve, of course, is that when it's on capital account, you can get the CGT the discount. The dis- discounts, right, yeah. Which is really significant. And and so it is a, it, it is potentially discountable. There's another benefit too. And, and um, well, I guess we'll 
if we were to be more technical about this, what does it relate to? Mm-hmm. It relates to foregoing the right and the ending of the right. So this is um, so the, the right to seek compensation is CGT event C2. Okay. And then when that comes to an end, so you've got an intangible asset coming to an end by surrender, extinguishment, release, etc. is CGT event C2, which is a discountable event. And right. you go back to the time which the breach occurred. Right. Um, and if the time in which the breach occurred is, is been more than 12 months from the time of receipt, Hey, presto, 50%. 50%. So that's incredibly favourable. And that's even if some of the component may, if being able to be dissected, there may be an income component to it, but we can't articulate or we can't detail what that number actually is. Right, right, okay. So it's all on capital, which is nice. There's another component here which is even better. If any of this amount, or sorry, pardon me, if this amount relates to personal wrong, injury, illness, etc., that capital receipt, is exempt from capital gains tax. Ah, so it's a tax-free kick, Okay, which is really nice. So we've seen a case recently where the taxpayer was arguing that it was undissectable. Turns out that it was dissectable. Um, the taxpayer argued that, all right, if it is dissectable, some of this amount relates to personal wrong injury illness, therefore the capital component should be tax-free. Uh, yep. And that was right. I mean, as it happened, um, that that split was 88% of it related to the income of the taxpayer treated on revenue account. 12% of it was capital um, tax-free. Right. Now, I mean, I don't know the name. I can't remember the name of the case off the top of my head, but it came out a couple of months ago. And yeah, yeah. I think we're seeing time and time again, these may not be the most high-profile cases, but mm. this... This treatment of compensation payments is something that is that just seems to be incredibly relevant most really? months. Yeah, really. And it's a lot of money, I'd imagine, I mean, potentially. Really significant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the one thing too is that as tax practitioners, being involved in the, in the negotiations is really important. Uh, yeah. We often, we often are engaged um, after the fact. And right. when we're after the fact, I mean, we've got this deed that we need to analyse and work out to what extent does it relate to income or capital yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. what is the underlying asset. Whereas when we're engaged earlier, perhaps we can start to be of greater use to the client. Okay, yeah. Does case law have a big influence in this sort of Oh, yeah, thing? very big influence, okay. very big influence. So tax ruling 9535 is informed by, um, is informed by case law and okay. we continue to see case law. So when you get it, have a look at that tax. When, when, you, when you do see um, a compensation payment and you wonder what to do with it, start, yeah, with, yeah. The, start with the tax ruling certainly and then... Um, have a look at some of those cases there and then have a look at some of the more recent cases that may be more analogous. But it is something that there's plenty of guidance around. Right, right. It's, yep. oh, I mean, in my very humble view, I think it's a concessionary area of the law for taxpayers because I, I think being able to treat amounts on capital oh, where, yeah, yeah. where they're undissectable is really favourable. Yeah, 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 if it works out that way. Um, especially, as you said, for the board, it's a personal injury, etc. Yeah, personal injury, wrong yeah. or illness. It yeah. can be CG, exempt from CGT. Right, right, okay. That's interesting, Josh. So um, is there anything else been keeping you keeping you busy? Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, in terms of what else is coming out of these discussion groups, and this is coming out of um, more in the questions, people are very interested in, from a Division 7A perspective, oh, the application yeah. of what's known as the 109RB application, which okay. is the application for the Commissioner's discretion yep. um, regarding Division 7A and deemed dividends. Now, when this arises and people people don't fail to meet their minimum yearly repayments for a range of reasons. Yeah. Um, this is seeking a commissioner's discretion to not deem a dividend. When this occurs, I guess the thing that sort of comes out and is, it's almost on a jukebox, everyone keeps saying this. When you're seeking the commissioner's discretion generally, the, the biggest piece of advice that I've got, and this is certainly relayed by the, by the um, other tax practitioners in the room, yep. 
remedy the mistake. Remedy the mistake. Remedy the mistake. Okay. Do right. Oh, yeah, okay. Fix it yep. before you ask for the discretion. So then you can come uh, in and ask for clean hands. Okay. So it's like when you're asking the commissioner's discretion to, uh, to remit certain charges or certain interest charges or penalties and whatnot. Yeah. If you fail to lodge for six years, but you've still got one outstanding and you're seeking to waive the penalties for those six-year periods, right. my advice is fix that seventh year before you start to oh, ask I for the see. remission. Okay, now I get it. When okay. you're, when you're uh, seeking commissioner's discretion in regards to minimum yearly repayments, have that payment made. Right. So right. you might be late, yep. but have that payment made and then seek the commissioner's discretion to waive the debt. To go dividend. back and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. your problem is not that you haven't made the minimum yearly repayment. The problem is now that you were late on the minimum yearly repayment. Yes. Okay. It becomes a much easier argument to run. And certainly from my experience, the success of these is largely contingent on what have you done since. Okay, yep, yep. You can ask for the commissioner to take an educative approach and use this as uh, we'll be better next time. If you're going to do that, illustrate that you're not going to be a recidivist. No, Illustrate no. That, that you have remedied it now yep. and that you won't be in this situation in the future. And right, you can right. detail why this is the case. But remedying your mistake or remedying the failure to meet the minimum yearly repayment is, uh, I think, critical to a successful yeah, application yeah. seeking commissioner's discretion. Okay, and it, does it happen a lot? Like people do seek that discretion. Yeah, it does. I mean, it's yeah. obviously not the it's obviously not the idea. Is um, it, isn't there um, further? Isn't a change to Div Seven A coming? Is that the on the books to be? I don't know when. I forget when. Do you remember? Yeah. So there are changes to Division Seven A, and we um, we heard that these are going to be coming uh, next year. June next, next year. year. Okay. Um, it's one of those that. Um, I've got more confidence now that that will be the date. Right. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think we've been promised these Division 7A changes for a long time. So right, yeah. one of those things with these changes to Division 7A, there are quite dramatic changes proposed in a consultation paper. Um, a lot of practitioners not happy about the consultation paper. There's been a lot of noise from the profession. Yep. One of those things we have to be aware of what these changes may look like. Um, I, I suspect that when we get this draft legislation, it's going to look different. Oh, no, from what we've already seen. Yeah, from what was indicated in the right. consultation paper. Yep. Um, one of those things, watch out, be mindful of it. Things like uh, distributable surplus are going to be foregone. It's pretty dramatic changes, right. um, particularly yep. with these pre-97 um Division Seven A loans um, now being brought back on foot is something okay. that um, is something that people are going to be mindful of. So that we're almost going to have a uniform period of ten years to meet your Division Seven A loans. Um, Pre ninety seven loans, people have sort of had it on their balance sheet and parked. Yeah, they're now going to be asked to repay them. Which, um, again, in my in my humble view, I I don't think a pre ninety seven loan is ever meant to sit there forever in a day. Mm. I, I think I, I think. Um, Taxpayers ought to have been mindful of it, right? Yep. But that they would have to repay them now. There are some pretty significant pre ninety seven division seven A loans sitting there. So okay, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it's one of those things that have a look, be mindful. Uh, changes are coming. Yeah, yeah. So be prepared as much as you can. Be basically. prepared. Have a look yeah. at that consultation paper and be across it because right, this, this right. will affect most of the clients in the private tax space. And yep. um, Division 7A is obviously a very important area of law and it's about to change in a big way. Right, so right. Um, June 2020 is when we expect these changes to come in. So Which isn't that far away, really. Not June 2020. Yeah. It's not, not that far this away. This is going to be a really moving space, Division 7A. Yeah, 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 exactly. And a lot, a lot of those sort of finer detail sort of topics, I mean, um, the whole... You probably heard the Harding case on, on residency. That's uh, changed a lot of things. You mentioned distributions, um, and that's another 
area where there's just change about uh, dealing with um, with income, I suppose. Yeah, and, and I guess the world, Steve, is going to test you. The world's just getting smaller and smaller. It is, So yeah. international tax is becoming an area that um, certainly from my perspective I need to just continue to get sharper and sharper at. Oh, right. The yep. Harding case is a really interesting one in terms of residency. Um, you may have noted that the High Court um, denied special leave, so it won't yes. be heard by the High Court. Mm. So that's... Um, that, that's an interesting one, but that's that was an individual residency case. In, in terms of what's coming out of trusts, uh, this is also a moving space, and this yep. 99B or this this Division 99B yep. um, is is an interesting one. So where you sort of there, there have been a few cases regarding this, and probably the most typical application to watch out for is you have a foreign trust that makes a distribution to a resident beneficiary, so an Australian beneficiary, yep. Yep. and you got to work out whether that amount's accessible for the Australian. The golden rule essentially is um, as a result of 99B and it starts to be quite egregiously unfair and then 99B subsection 2, and again, I don't have the legislation in front of me, so um, (laughs) don't directly quote me on this, (laughs) but uh, the golden rule is basically treat that distribution as if it was received um, from a resident trust. Oh, right. So you've got to make a determination as to whether that amount is corpus or whether that amount reflects income. So... A distribution of corpus of the trust won't be assessable for the taxpayer, but a distribution of income will be assessable yep, for the taxpayer. Yep. What is corpus and what is income is a question that is not that easy to ask. Hmm. There's a case that came out last month where we had um, a New Zealand trust. The taxpayer was arguing that it was corpus. The commissioner was arguing that it was income, and naturally you can see where this goes. And it yeah, came down yeah. to an evidentiary question of whether there was sufficient documentation to argue that it was corpus. The fact that the taxpayer had two sets of accounts, both of which were different, both of which were deemed to be um, not factually correct, didn't help. Oh, really? Um, But when you get a distribution of corpus generally from a non-resident trust, it won't be be taxable in Australia. Mm -hmm. Where you get a distribution of income will be taxable in Australia. So 99B is an inherently complex provision, um, particularly particularly relevant where you've got non-resident trusts and distributions from non-resident trusts. It's something that we do need to be mindful of. But I guess the broader international tax space, uh, clients of all sizes now are starting to have international tax matters. And it's not just the big corporations that are dealing with... Uh, I was going to say, does, does it apply to individuals and other entities or yeah, across it's a, the board? It's, across the board, international tax is becoming more and more of an issue. Right, yeah. Uh, well, more and more of a consideration anyway, just because there is just so much more travel. There is so much um, exchange of funds overseas and... It's just so easy. It's so accessible now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's um. You, before you mentioned um Div Seven A, and um, uh, I think you had a, um some people talk to you about the benchmark interest rates that that are applied there, even though locally, I mean, you know, RBA is pushing everything down, but that's not the case. Yeah, is this it? is a bit anomalous. Uh, the Division Seven A rates have. Um, the Division Seven A rates are still in the sort of mid five percent. Okay. So. It's not consistent with what the RBA is doing. I mean, we've had two RBA cuts this year and we're now bracing for another one in the next month or so. Right, yep. And potentially two more before the end of the year. It's so amazing, yeah. The RBA is going down um, at reducing the cash rate by 25 basis points every time they meet, pretty much. Mm, so mm. this is not reflected in Division 7A and the, the benchmark interest rate. Yep. Um, I think we had a small increase this year, which which is... Really anomalous. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it certainly hasn't hasn't moved dramatically. Uh, tax practitioners are generally surprised by this. Uh, the mood of the room generally suggests that um, it, it's perhaps not indicative with the market. Ah, uh, okay. 
Yeah, I believe. I, I think it's more. I think that's more of a statement. I, I don't think there's anything to do about it. It's just something to be mindful of that <laughs> perhaps you'd expect to cut when there are no cuts forthcoming in the benchmark interest rate. It's it's a uh, it. I suppose you know it's annoying. Not annoying, but practitioners have to deal with government and what they tell us to do and what they need to deal with. I mean, um, the TPB. I mean, that's um, uh, another. What's a, a body that uh, people have to deal with? What, what's your feeling on how practitioners are um, interacting with the? The regulator. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of authorities to really consider. I mean, certainly when we get changes, they can really come from two places. I mean, you can get a change from Treasury, which is a change in the law and the black letter. And yep. then you can get a change in um, the ATO, which would come out as a practice statement or a tax ruling or yep. law companion guide or all sorts of different changes. There's everything sort of forthcoming. And then you're sort of getting messages now from the Tax Practitioners Board, which is, um, I think there's a little bit of confusion around the role of the Tax Practitioners Board. And Again, I'm just the messenger here, but people are sort of querying uh, the role of the Tax Practitioners Board and the messages that are sort of coming out of it. Yeah. There's no doubt that the Tax Practitioners Board is really active at the moment, and, and I think that's good. I think I think an active Practitioners Board is good. Yeah, yeah. The Tax Practitioners Board have been chasing down non-lodgement from tax agents. Yeah, um, yeah. Which... I mean, put simply, if a, if a tax agent's not lodging their own tax return, it's like the um, it's like the son or daughter of the hairdresser having scruffy hair. It's, <laughs> it's, we're very good at looking after other people's backyards, but we don't mow our own lawn. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's one of those things that they've they've really clamped down on tax agents who are who are not lodging, and they've seen a dramatic increase in that. Right. Okay. They had a release last month, which I thought was really valuable about um, engagement letters and what should be in your engagement letters. Oh, that's right. Yep. Yep. We, I, I think it's brilliant. I mean, this is the sort of stuff that, that tax agents want to see. And, yeah, and yeah. The, um, certainly from the room, I, I certainly pointed this out. I think this is great. What, it, it's interesting because the TPB didn't, they haven't issued a, a pro forma, like a template, which is, I think they, it's, it's a bit hard to do that. And we've actually had members asking us, well, do you have a, do you have a template for an engagement letter we, we, when we don't? Um, the TPB has guidance on what should be included, and etc., in an engagement letter, yeah. which is something, I suppose. Yeah, it is something, and it's nice to inform what the, the, the practice or the existing practice of mm. the members and the practitioners broadly. Yeah. I think the Tax Practitioners Board um, is in the spotlight. I think the Tax Practitioners Board does a lot of good work. Yep. I think the Tax Practitioners Board has areas for improvement, but so do you and I, Steve. It's, um, <laughs> we all do. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah I, I just think that this is an area of focus right now. And, okay. and the Tax Practitioners Board are very active. They're also under review and, and uh, where they sort of sit is being considered. So yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of very clever people sit on that board and a lot of they do a lot of very good things. So exactly. It's, it's, yeah, it's just an interesting space. And so, Josh, what else is coming out of the uh, out of the room when you're talking to people? What what are they talking about? Yeah, well, personal services income is something that the ATO has um, even mentioned is oh, something. PSI, that, yep, yeah, yep. The, old, the old PSI, the perennial. It's something that um, the ATO have recognised that there's been a lot of case law around this recently, and the AATs heard a few cases about this. So we had um, uh, certainly in our discussion groups, we discussed two of them last month, and we're about to discuss another one this month a case uh, um, sorry. yeah case really? yeah so the, i mean three cases in a short space of time with psi hmm. it's an it's a difficult area uh, generally um whether you a personal services business or not and hmm. the implications of being a personal services business I, I think the interesting space um for me is when you look at what's happening with the corporate tax rates and they they will be reduced in 2024 that's right um, the, by 2024, certainly. And so will the individual tax rates. So the individual tax rates, there's going to be this reduction to, for most taxpayers, down to 30%. Right. And yep. the corporate tax rate is going to be reduced down to 5%. So whether people uh, seek to operate through a corporate entity and 
make personal services income rules a, a, a consideration, is, right. it probably becomes less and less attractive to operate through a through an interim entity. Okay. The other part too is that um, you've also got other on costs, work cover. Oh yeah, super and true. That, that sort of come with it, the employment on costs. But yeah, yeah. I think. My, I mean, if I was to, if I had a crystal ball in front of me, I would say in five years' time, personal services income is going to be less of an issue than what it is now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you think? Do you think that's the aim of the possibly? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm not sure personal services income informs it. It might be an mm. ancillary objective. It, okay. it might be something, or it might even be incidental or coincidental, maybe. But it's. It's certainly something that when you closer align the corporate tax rate with the individual tax rate, yeah. um, the attraction of operating through a personal service or through a business, yeah. uh, through a separate entity becomes less and less attractive. Yeah, especially when, as you said, you add those on costs of things that you have to set up. It just adds a layer up. of complexity where, yeah. the, the, where the effective tax benefit perhaps is reduced. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just think that's a moving landscape. It's certainly an active landscape right now. Okay, um, yeah. And I guess what we were discussing as, as discussion as a, in – both the discussion groups that I do, the breakfast one and the evening one, yeah. it's certainly an important part of people's practices. There's no doubt. And my general gauge was that um, this is almost, a, this is a part of the staple diet that you just have to know about the personal services income rules. Because it's going to come up. Uh, it's, it's, it must be interesting. I mean, f- for you and for me too, when you when test discussion groups, people are very keen on it. You get every practitioner turning up is going to have, you don't know how many clients behind them, as it were, relying on them for advice. And so they're going to bring all that to the table. Um, it's a really good judge, a good litmus test, really, of what's uh, what's out there and being discussed. So it's good to hear that. Yeah, I mean, I'm yeah. in a, I consider myself very fortunate to be doing what I'm doing because I get to share mm. a room with a bunch of very clever people. And yeah. you take my client experiences and you times them by 20 every time you get in a room. So mm. when you fill a room with 20, 25 people, you're going to be getting... 25 different ideas when you fill a room with five people or 50 people you do it's just a multiplier of the client base yeah yeah exactly so we're seeing some fascinating client examples come up and one thing that that we probably the favorite part of the discussion group for me is we have almost conversation hour and all right and and if people have um client queries that they wish to address Mm. it's um and, and without without selling it too much it's um if someone has a client query that they wish to run by the group or they've got an idea, they present their client circumstance and you get the benefit of the whole room's view. So everyone chips in if they have an opinion everyone or chips in, perhaps yeah. an experience from the past, but, yeah, so which is take, a good thing. You take your most complex client and you get the benefit of everyone in the room. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you get the benefit of people with legal backgrounds, with accounting backgrounds, with big client backgrounds, small client backgrounds, exactly, international, yeah. self-managed super fund, GST. Everyone has their own little sweet spot yep, yep and you're now tapping into people's sweet spots exactly so yeah. i think that's the real benefit and that's the fortunate position that i'm in and um i've been able to learn a lot from the from the attendees but this is why as i was saying earlier in the earlier in the interview steve yeah i um i really push that uh, my view is just one view and let's let's hear everyone else's view it's funny i'm i was i'm in a discussion with there's a guy called nathan Yee who does a lot of uh, some of our presentations um Things I don't think about usually, say, estate planning it comes into the discussion if you're looking at, say, SMSFs or, you know, trust distributions, all this sort of thing. And, oh, there's another aspect to that talk, estate planning. And um, half the time I don't even think of it, but it's there and it's real and it makes a big difference. These sort of elements that, uh, as you said, people bring to the table from their experience. Yeah, definitely. I think mm. that's the great part about it. You have people who are um, better versed in, in experience, in um dispute resolution and controversy and dealing with the respective revenue authorities. You have people who are really strong in estate planning, people who are really strong in the space of GST and payroll tax and FAT and they all talk about their lodgement programs and what's on the radar and what they're finding and what their (laughs) software's doing and um, all that. I I mean, software's a really interesting one. Um, 
sorry, I, I'm a bit tangential. No, but, that's good. But, yeah. but software is one, um, particularly around election time, it's one thing to have these dramatic changes in policy. Yeah. And that's um, that, that's where the election plays out. And that's where the, that's what people hear. Yeah, yeah. And then there's mechanically, what are we going to do about it? Exactly. So the question of when you talk about the minimum tax on trust distributions, people are querying mechanically, how's this going to work? And ha- so yes, how's the law going to work was question number one. Yeah. And question number two is how's the software going to work? That's true. That's <laughs> a big thing. Well, look at STP. That, that was a big change. People had to, had to adopt something to get, to get passed and that's not actually 100% adopted yet, of course, and people are still having trouble. But software, of course, has got to catch up to all the talk that happens behind, you know, in the lead up to these changes. Yeah, um, definitely. So I guess where I sit, I'd probably act in more of a legal capacity. So right. it's all well and good that I have a grasp of what the law actually is, but then there's another grasp of mechanically how does this work? Mm. So when we assist a lot of our accountants around the office and um, they talk about non-commercial loss rules was one that, for example, came up and they said, Josh, you sure you got the right position uh-huh. because the software doesn't agree and so then we came back computer says no that's exactly what it was and so then we double triple quadruple checked ourselves and we ended up our position was right we yep pretty sure of yep um we spoke to the person at the tax office and they said no apologies about the software here's what it should be and we'll rectify it at our end but it's one thing to have the right position at law which is probably where i spend most of my time working but then there's another position mechanically how does this work um, and getting the software to match up with the position at law is, is yep, not always yep. as obvious as it sounds. No, no. I no. have a bit of sympathy for the software um, developers, basically, because yeah. it's—I mean, they need to be a step ahead of the curve. Well, <laughs> 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 you know, I'm sure they earn their money, but uh, it's uh, and as the changes happen, you sort of got to feel for them, to, trying to keep up. Of yeah, course. so I yeah. mean, we need to know how it works. They need to know how it works, and then have the infrastructure to. to keep up with it yeah, yeah. Um, and then if the infra- if the infrastructure can't keep up with it or the infrastructure is slightly delayed on the change then you have the then then you have the the accounts people on the ground who are yep. really suffering the effects of software that can't sort of keep up with keep the change in the law so <laughs> it's all well and good that we discuss proposed changes and consultation papers and drafts and whatnot but if I was in the software development of all this, I'd be having a fit. <laughs> yeah, yes gosh now Josh we're sort of coming to the end, end of the uh, tax time 2019, what's, what sort of um, issues and concerns and questions of uh, practices have had about, about individual lodgement um, this tax time? What are the watchouts? What are the concerns? Yeah, so, I mean, this is obviously a focus area when we've got individual lodgements, and, it, I mean, individual lodgements tend to carry around all, all year round because you've got your, your middle of May lodgement dates and yep, you've got right. those without tax agents who are lodging approximately now. And, yep. Um, the, the, the one area that, that was a focus was how does this $1,080 work and when does it hit my account? That's and that right. was a concern for a while that mm. the law wasn't passed by 30 June. So that was a concern. But mm. what we're hearing a lot from the tax office now is um, work-related expenditure, which is oh, yeah. which is a repeat of what they were, um, what the ATO was putting in the spotlight last year. Yes, exactly. Um, there was a release by the tax office called Dodgy Car Expense Claims. And All right. the word dodgy was their word, which was interesting. Uh, <laughs> so, I, I mean, this... Um, Making sure that you go through the proper uh, proper process of yep. um, of recording your car expenditure, noting that the five thousand kilometre where you don't need to show uh, substantiating evidence that doesn't necessarily mean it's a five thousand kilometre free kick for everyone. No, and no. You can yep. put in that three thousand three hundred dollar deduction. That's not how it applies. It needs to be reasonable. It needs to be accurate. Mm. Um, you just need, don't need to have a logbook on hand. It's um, pe- people are. I mean, that's in the spotlight again. 
Also, laundry expenses, that $150 laundry expense. Right. Uh, Where'd they find that people were claiming up to the threshold and then, you know, there often, were many, many? Yeah. Often, yeah. yeah. So the ATO has been releasing uh, proper guidance on, on what the laundry, uh, or what, what the entitlement to claim a laundry expense is. Yeah. Um, and, and this is just because there are a lot of claims for laundry expenditure that perhaps shouldn't be claimed. Again, it's just something to focus on. Work-related expenditures coming up time and time again. Right, right. The other one too, uh, this year certainly, is um, rental properties are being targeted. Oh, okay, yeah. Again, just be just be mindful. I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of misunderstanding around the allowed allowable deductions in the space okay. of rental properties. Yeah. When you talk about uh, allowable interest deductions, they're often misunderstood, particularly when you got instances of refinancing properties and whether, oh, yeah. whether they're for yeah. investment purposes or private purposes. And you yep. go back to what is the actual purpose of the borrowing, and a lot of that is a lot of that's misunderstood. Um, particularly, people are being told by their mortgage brokers or from the banks that certain certain debt, uh, the, the interest on certain debt, will be deductible. And okay, yeah. of course, mortgage brokers are not tax agents. I was so. going to say, is it a bit of in- misinformation? Yeah, I mean, it's um, a misunderstanding. Okay. To, to be fair, it's complicated. Yep, um, yep. I, I mean, there is an area of complexity here. Um, the other part too is that you just need proper advice. Uh, oh, you yeah, need to make yeah. sure that you're doing this right because. My friend told me, my mortgage broker told me, just doesn't fly. <laughs> it's, it, it doesn't fly. So, the, the guy on the taxi just reckoned that I can claim this for you. Yeah, yeah I mean, the amount of times that myself and other practitioners would have been told that my friend did this or this person <laughs> told me that I could do that. Can I do this? Yeah, and, yeah. and that just doesn't fly. And by the same token, my mortgage broker told me that I can claim a deduction. is just not not substantiation. No, that's the, not. first of all, it's not on paper. Any concerns about this whole vacant uh, properties uh, fees and things um from your in your experience yeah i mean the vacant properties one is is controversial mm. um isn't it it's it's something that the industry is talking about a lot um and i think there's some state-based uh schemes starting up i know victoria is looking looking at doing that yeah so this is a focus in um in so this absentee surcharge absentee uh, yeah, yeah. And, and the one in the spotlight at the moment is it is an income tax one um, and this is a denial of deductions for vacant um, vacant land and right. whether there's a premises and what actually accounts for a premises and what is vacant land mm-hmm. and there's all sorts of complications with it. Basically, uh, the people that this is going to affect is people who buy land with the intention to develop on the land and, oh. and they, they will generate accessible income. Yep. But they are yet to generate accessible income. The point too and, soon kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and it's not an occupiable property at the moment. No, no. Or it's they're about to demolish or all sorts of things and they're denied deductions along the way. Mm. Um, which, given that the intention is to derive, assess- derive accessible income, yep. um, I mean, the, the efficacy of it is is um, subject to dispute. But, mm. I mean, that's just sort of what we're facing. I mean, it is important to note that we can capitalise it. Yep. Um, but, I mean, it's an interesting space. But in terms of the law of uh, fairness and equity, I mean, this is a point that, Steve, we were talking about off air, that um, particularly in a lot of cases that are coming out at the moment, the, the judiciary are making a distinction between their role and the role of the legislature, which is the judiciary is saying it's not for us to determine whether it's fair or not. It's for us to interpret and apply the law. Oh, of course. Which is, I mean, the key distinction, isn't it, where you've got uh, what is the role of the executive, legislature and judiciary. That's and true, yeah. The AAT, the federal court, they're not yep. to determine whether it's fair or not. No, no. So there's a case where, um, which came out last month or the month before, I forget, where someone was paid in arrears for their wages. and. Oh, part of the payment related to a period in which they were a non-resident. They were assessed on the Medicare levy even on that period in which they were a non-resident. Okay, right. Which the law of fairness would tell you that that's not right. Mm. The, the tax law would tell you that salary is 
brought to account when it's received. And this is just black letter. Okay. So it's one of those unfortunate instances where the taxpayer will be subject to the Medicare levy um, on that payment in arrears. Whether it's fair or not is not a question for the judges to determine. No, no. The question for the judges to determine is what is the law, what are the facts, and how does it apply? Yeah, yeah. Okay, the letter of the law, but... Yeah, I mean, um, mean, there is an area of complexity. And and when there's a strong reliance on, on... judicial interpretation or when there's a strong reliance on the existing jurisprudence and case law Mm. that's when the the judges can start to analogize and distinguish and and make determinations depending on the binding nature of the the precedent but when you're um when you're determining whether the legislation is is correct or incorrect that's not a role for the judiciary the judiciary is to determine what is the law what are the facts and how does it apply yep and hence the arguable case you've got to argue from some point that's it from some point agree it's a very rich uh, reservoir of uh, information you've got to dealing there, Josh, with the, all the discussion groups and, and your clients, of course. Um, I hope you come back and tell us some more uh, gems in a month or two and um, fill us in about what the mood in the room is once again. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me. Thanks, listeners. Please tune in again next time.